Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Bede Haynes and welcome to another episode of the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. This afternoon we have the author of Missing Among Us, Erin Stewart, who is joining us from Canberra and her book has been published in 2021 by New South Books. Before I hand, uh, ask Erin to say hello, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm on and pay my respects to their the people, past, present and future. So good afternoon, Erin. Thank you for joining us. Hi, no worries. Um, I would like to begin by letting the audience know a little bit about you. You're based in Canberra. You're a freelance writer. You've written for a number of publications, um, including the ABC, SBS, Daily Life, The Age. You also make regular radio appearances, and you have a PhD in nonfiction writing from the University of Wollongong, I think. Yeah, that's right. Okay, could you um, could you let us know how this book came about? Yeah, so it was a pretty long process. So I started my PhD in 2014 um, in nonfiction writing. Um, one of the things I was really interested in was how to tell stories that don't have an ending. Um, like I've been, you know, going to writing workshops and this sort of thing my whole life. And one of the things that, you know, you, you're told as a uh, as a, um, an emerging writer is that, you know, all stories have to have a beginning, middle and end or like a clear like conflict and resolution. Um, and what I was finding um, in my own life, but as well as other people's lives, um, that doesn't really happen, but it's still really important even without a sense of resolution to tell stories so that people understand what different experiences are like um, and you can bring attention to really important issues. So that was kind of where I started. Um, and then it kind of led pretty naturally to stories about missing persons where there's quite a lot of um, unresolved stories um, as well as um, people having to come to terms with quite ambiguous circumstances and maybe not really feeling like their story has an ending but still feeling like it's really important for the story to be told. Mm, right. Now, when I read your book, Erin, what struck me, and it almost stays like a meditation throughout the whole book, is the first sentence where it says, to be missing, you must be missed, which I think encapsulates a lot of what the book's about. And a couple of things I'd like you to reflect on there, uh, that actual idea that being missing can be focused on not from the person who is missing, but the people who are looking for that person or the people who miss that person. Could you comment on that for me, please? Yeah, sure. So I think one one thing to keep in mind is that often people who go missing actually know where they are. Like they, it's not a mystery to them um, in, unless they've, uh, you know, they've gotten confused or lost um, quite quite often, like, people will, you know, leave one environment to go to a different one. And the problem with that is that people don't know where they are, not, rather, not that the missing person doesn't know where there is generally. So looking at the issue, like, a, a person becomes missing because they aren't in the places that they usually are and people around them have recognised that and they've said, actually, this is really concerning. And then to be counted in the statistics, they would need to then um, like make a report with the police or um, a similar uh, tracing organisation or something. So in essence, miss, missing people get defined because people around them miss them, not because um, of anything that they've like done specifically, which means that certain people will go missing and no one will realise and that won't get um, reported. Or oh, some people will go missing and the people around them are not that concerned, say, because they've been missing like a lot of times before. 
um and they think oh that's just that's just them that's just normal um and so yeah so you get a different like a disparity of like what counts as concerning and then who counts as missing mm. and another uh, another point I'd like you to comment on because missing the way you've explained it then is the way in the, where the feelings sit within the person as you've said who isn't absent but the person who is what we would say is there is present and there's also a, 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 I suppose a common feeling in our society that you can miss people that don't actually exist. So a lady who is unable to have children might miss the child she never had, or you might miss someone who's died. Um, do, how would you, do you find any, any correlation between that feeling and then the feeling of actually someone who you think could potentially come back one day? I think one of the things that um, came up a lot in my research and in talking to people who um, have had loved ones go missing is this concept of ambiguous loss. So this is the idea where basically it's, it is like grief. So it's as though someone's died, um, but you're not really sure about what the nature of that loss is yet. Um, so you could have, um, for example, if you have like a loved one who has become like terminally ill, so you know that they're going to die, but you don't necessarily know when. Um, often people will start, in a sense, grieving that loss, even though it's not actually happened yet. Um, mm -hmm. So, and yeah, and then it happens with missing persons. Um, or I guess if you if you have a loved one with is dementia, say, and they've they've become quite different as a person, like a different like you've lost the person that they once were kind of thing. So that's a difficult form of grief, I think, especially compared to, if you compare it to death, at least, I mean, when someone dies, it's, it's obviously really horrible, but you do have like a ritual for coping with it. You have funerals, you have um, ways of marking that grief um, that can be really helpful. Um, but when it comes to missing persons, there's nothing like that. So um, there's just uncertainty about whether you should be grieving at all and um, maybe a lack of support from other people because it is a less kind of relatable form of grief. Um, and, yeah, yeah and they are feelings that don't really go away because the situation stays essentially the same. Mm. And I think that comes out in the in the next part of the book, which is it's almost the book's divided, I, I found very interestingly, where it starts off with what a lot of people, at least I did, thought of was this is what a missing person is. And you have famous cases, Maddie McCann, Azaria Chamberlain. And then as the book goes on, you come you develop through more complex cases that you might people might not think of or I would not have thought of as being cases of missing, but then you you explain how that they are. With the, big, with the famous people, can you talk about two elements of that? One is that the from, there's a very public profile of those missing stories. They, they saturate the news. But I also, of course, obviously sitting behind that are the individuals who are affected in the way you've just described. And it's almost as though the public display of those stories is so different from the personal grief of the people who, will, who have lost the person. Could you comment on that? Yeah, definitely. So I guess if if a loved one, if one of your yeah loved ones went missing, you'd want the kind of level of media coverage that someone like Madeline McCann has received and continues to receive. Um, so, I mean, I guess some the basic facts is that she was missing, went missing in Portugal in 2007 um, when she was three years old and um her parents were only meters away, but they were out having dinner with friends. Um, and then there was like this this huge publicity campaign um, in order to try to find any information. Um, a reward fund, uh, it was to the tune of like 2.6 million pounds um, for any like information about her. Um, and like donors included people like JK Rowling and Rupert Murdoch. It was, it was huge. And it was also kind of um, 
like of although like the parents got some something out of it in the sense that like like obviously this is one of the most high pro- high profile missing persons cases ever um but on top of that the newspapers also got a lot out of it um whenever she was on the front cover um there was like i think it was like 30,000 additional copies would be sold wow yeah so um so in that sense like this is you would think like a pretty ideal situation like if your if your child was lost this this kind of coverage is amazing it's it's exactly what you'd want but then it comes like the narrative kind of changed to start to blame the parents um a portuguese police inspector actually like quit the police force so that he could write a book uh in 2008 like to accuse the parents of covering up um, her death and there were all these like weird rumors and uh, all of it has has been like debunked and the parents have received um uh like defamation uh money and uh, compensation and stuff but i i guess what has happened in that case is that it turned from like oh we're all very concerned about this to we need to blame the parents because if if a child can go missing in these circumstances and every single um you know effort is made to find her and we still can't find her like what does that say about risk what does that say about the likelihood that any any child could go missing um and i think that's that kind of fear was behind that condemnation of madeline mccann's parents and then there was no space left in the public really for their grief and um they were just seen as suspicious people rather than as i think every example you use in that chapter involves the parents becoming the suspects of the missing person yeah and i i think it is going back to that idea of like what what does it mean for us if you know a dingo can eat your baby like like just out of the blue or if a yeah if a if a girl with like quite a lot of um socioeconomic privilege and a lot of attention is still missing uh, and you know it's been a long time um and s- similar with Jobani Ramsey although um she's not missing she was only missing for a few hours um but still those parents were absolutely like just dragged um and I, and I I think at least part of that was had to that suspicion had to do with coming to terms with the fact that children go missing and it might not be anyone's fault and that just might be a risk of being alive mm. the one turn the book first takes is commenting on how the 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 tragedy of a person who's missing in a comment in something you were talking about a little bit earlier which is the not knowing aspect of it and you relay this story of q goodwin in new zealand who looks as though he may have um taken his own life but i don't think in the end ultimately may have been declared to be dead lawfully but i'm not sure there that there's been actually any body found no and and the point so i'll be grateful if you'll comment on that story and one thing in particular is another very interesting point is that the the people left behind can some and didn't happen in this case which is what i'd like you to comment on but the people left behind can almost become trapped in that moment so they feel they can't leave their house. They can't move somewhere else in case this person turns up one day. How would they ever find them? And it's just such a – you can just sense the, the, the claustrophobia of just this, this your world just collapsing in on you and freezing you at a moment in time. Yeah, so there has been some research um, about that – I guess it's almost like a different sense of time that you can have if you're a a family member or a friend of a missing person, which is that every day without them, you might feel guilty that you're going on with your life and you still have this mystery, I guess, that that you need to solve. So um, people get into kind of habits of 
trying to look for the missing person whenever they've like they might go out shopping and they'll be scanning like the supermarket aisles for the person or um they might feel bad about going to see a movie or something because that's three hours where you can't be looking um and and yeah there are also examples of people who are like have thought of about moving to a new house or something but then the danger of that is that if they do that and the missing person decides to come back one day, they might not be that easy to find again. Um, and so, yeah, there's this sense of real stuckness. And I think one of the things I talked to Sarah Godwin about, who's so her son, uh, her son was Q, that the boy, uh, the teenager you mentioned. Um, she basically in order to like get through that um like inertia I suppose um she had to move she moved back to the UK so she was in New Zealand and um yeah decided to go back to the UK where she was from initially um where you know um she would get some space from that which isn't to say because obviously that's also quite guilt-inducing um, that isn't to say that she stopped caring about the case, just that that distance really was needed for her to um, cope with what was going to be the rest of her life. Yes. And I, one thing that comes through to me is for, 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 the, for the, the reader of your work who doesn't have a missing person in their life, it seems so easy to judge the conduct of the person who isn't missing and it's almost as though the person who isn't missing, so in this case, the lady who moved back, who moved to the UK, has to justify why she moved to the UK. It seems it's such a burden of, of being someone associated with a missing person that you have all these, it's almost as though you have these expectations put upon you as to how you must act. Yeah, I think from from her and from a few other people I spoke to, there was a sense of like, why isn't this case solved yet? Or um, there can be quite diametrically opposed views, but they all come from sort of the same idea, which is that um, I can't tolerate the fact that you don't know where your loved one is. So I want to either impose on you an ending, like, oh, you should give up because this person's probably dead, or, um, oh, have you looked in this place or that place? Or, you know, have you have you really like done the job good enough? That kind of thing. Um, yeah. Or I guess the alternative is that the conversation just gets shut down. Um, people can get really isolated from friends and stuff um, who don't really want to talk about it at all. Mm, gosh. Another scenario that comes up is where two parents have a child and one parent removes the child from the legal jurisdiction into another jurisdiction and the person left behind in the former in the place where they all used to be can can sometimes not be able to get back to their child. Yeah. So in that case, so with child abduction, I think I mean one thing that's probably like a point that's probably worth making is that a lot of people think of child abduction as like an, a stranger taking a child away, um, just kind of randomly, but. In most cases, children are abducted by a family member or someone they know, and quite often it's one of their parents. Um, so in this case, it was the child's father um, abducted him um, without – so um, he did have joint custody of the child, but they weren't allowed to take the child out of the country without um, the permission of the other. So, yeah, and then that became um, – a real problem uh so the parent left behind um the mother um she basically had to um wait until because sorry it, they had um the the father had custody over like a holiday over like a school holiday and then she had to wait until the end of the school holidays before she could make a police complaint because technically uh, he, you know, he he would have been able to like, you know, have he could have gone on holiday or something. So, 
then she had to go through like a mediator who ended up being able to contact the father who was in Portugal and then it just became like a, a really big five-month-long kind of legal proceed. It was always like civil proceedings to get the sum back and she was able to contact him like on the telephone and, and that kind of thing over the time. But um, it's really difficult and especially when um, you have the feeling, which is which is what happened in this case, that the father wasn't really taking the son in order because he thought that that would be good for the son's welfare or anything. It was because he was really, the son was really important to her and it was a way to assert control over her. And then mm. so the concern was that um, he, uh, he would be taken even further away um, again and it would be even harder to recover him. Yes, and one point that you you comment on and I would like to know what your research found out about this is that when the child in that case did go back to Belgium I think it was yeah the one important point was that it doesn't the father isn't arrested for a crime it's a civil matter yeah under the law and I imagine that so that the there's no it gives the there's no disincentive for the father to return or the parent to return because they're not going to get thrown in jail. So it's almost a, a sort of mercy law almost or a way of it just has to happen like that. Is that is that approach typical that it wouldn't be that you would not be charged with a crime? Um, I'm not actually sure. I, I guess that's a legal question and I think it would depend on the jurisdiction. What generally happens is that under these laws, um, they can be it can be quite different. So in in this situation, it turned out quite well. But what can happen is that, say, uh, like a, a woman fleeing a domestic violence situation will take uh, her children to her country of origin, um, and then this proceeding would be made against her, and then that would then introduce all these other issues around mm. like safety and, and that kind of thing. So I I think these laws are probably good. I think they could be probably strengthened mm. um, and to be more tailored to like what kind of situations do we actually want to protect children from and what situations can we see that maybe – it is in the child's best interest to be maybe not taken abroad, but to be removed from a, like a, a situation like domestic violence. Um, I think it's really complicated, and I don't know if an like international like legal instruments are particularly good with interpersonal relationships because we've got like a massive infrastructure trying to tell like individual people what to do and it, obviously it becomes so nuanced and stuff but it's it's hard to say like what would be effective yes one of the another aspect you draw out is because a missing someone who's missing for those who are left behind is such a stressful such an emotionally draining experience it does give rise to the ability for humans to be cruel and mm -hmm. taking a child across a border where there's no ability for the person to easily get the child back could be used as a trick as to punish or to, to harm the person who's left behind. So a father might take a child, the mother suffers, and it's done to make the mother suffer, not necessarily for the best interests of the child, where domestic violence could be the exact opposite situation. And you also refer to these terrible incidents where someone's missing and people will ring up and say, oh, we've found the person. We found we and it, like a trick, and it just sounds horrendous. How 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 do the the how would the family cope with that sort of prank yeah so the hoaxes are just uh, like they're really difficult to comprehend so um this happened to two different people who i interviewed where they had they asked for the public for information um and set up a phone number um and someone has called that phone number and has just said um, either horrible things or has just probably made up a story. So it happened to Sarah with her um, son Q where the the 
call uh, was a young woman, I think, and she was saying that she had um, she had a baby with 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 this missing person, and it just became like horrifying I, I, for the family. It's like because you you honestly don't know what has happened to this person, and one of the things that kind of happens when a person goes missing is that you do find out little thing bits of information about them that you might not have known. Um, this, it wasn't a big theme in the pe- among the people I spoke to, but in the research, um, you might find out that someone uh, was addicted to drugs or um, had, you know, relationships that you didn't realize that they'd had um, and this sort of thing. So one of the things that those sorts of hoaxes do is they completely like undermine your understanding of that person. And they really do have to be taken seriously because you don't know how to easily distinguish between like information and uh, just stuff that's been made up because like you've got this whole doubt over the entire situation. Mm. Another tragic circumstance concerns runaways and Runaways are often, to me at least, thought of as being sort of romantic notion of someone running off and, and life isn't that great, off into the green fields. But the stories that you your research turned up concern things like children being abused and having to flee or houses with lots of drug use in them or parents, one parent inflicted domestic violence on the other. And then, even worse almost, the person who runs away might not actually be able to stay run away because running away is expensive. You've got to live. So they may even have to go back to the place they fled from and expose themselves again to the to what was happening. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so I, I kind of had a romantic notion of runaways as well. And I think that another notion that exists um, about runaways is that it's just like a kid throwing a tantrum like they're just not getting their way at home so um they're just running away to like change that because they're just fed up or whatever but um so there are quite a lot of studies about runaways um there was one u.s study that is around 38 percent of runaways have been physically abused at home um and about 10 percent have been verbally abused at home So often they're running away from really difficult circumstances. Um, And one of the problems is um, for police, say, when they find someone who's in this situation and bring them back to their home, they've not really resolved the problem. Like the reason why they ran ran away in the first place is still there. So what can happen is that you get people running away multiple times and so an investigator like a missing persons investigator I spoke to um knew of someone who'd run away from home over a hundred times which is like just very dramatic and it's like it is a big like it's a big use of police resources but I think more importantly it really speaks to like the high level of distress um that runaways can be under Mm. another category you raise a refugees and people who go missing through refugees, be it through war or whatever the case might be. A couple of, I'd like to ask you how refugees fit into the frame of missing people. And then another point you also explain is the way in which refugees are portrayed in the public imagination through the media also has a big impact on this part of the missing person universe? Yeah, sure. So basically whenever people are ha- having to leave their home, um, it makes them incredibly vulnerable to going missing. So, um, yeah, if you, if you just have to relocate from one place to another relati- relatively quickly, in, in that time people do go missing. Um, and then on top of that, um, some of the issues that can occur in like migration situations is where miners are um, traveling. Say, um, in I was looking at uh, the refugee crisis in Europe. So w- when miners are traveling um, into Europe without any parents, um, either because 
they don't have it or have them or more commonly just because their parents were not accompanying them. Um, and then in that case, what can happen is that they can go missing from ref, uh, like refugee centers and um, kind of uh, like facilities that are, that are intended to keep them safe while they get processed and, and this sort of thing. So um, what can happen, like the reasons why they go missing from those places are pretty complex and there's probably multiple reasons. So the there is the potential that they're being abducted. Um, there's also the potential that they're trying to, they want to go to a, like a different country or they um, like within the EU and they, or they don't quite understand like why they're in the reception center uh, and um, they might not have had like, have very good um, communications to them in languages that they understand. So yeah, it can become quite messy um, Mm -hmm. in terms of missing persons um, very quickly. And like some of the statistics around unaccompanied minors. So in 2016, um, Europol was estimating that there was around 10,000 missing unaccompanied minors in Europe. But um, the charity I spoke to thought it was much higher than that probably because it's underreported. So, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it becomes a huge issue. Yes, and with underreporting, you that comes up as well. Yeah. What is un, what is underreporting, and what can be done to better that situation? Yeah. So underreporting, it basically happens when you know there there'll be a certain number of missing persons cases, but not all of them get acknowledged or recognised as missing persons cases, and so it underestimates just the number of missing persons so it's it's pretty common just because um people will go missing but no one will have realized or or people have decided not to um report it and and then uh yeah then the the numbers are artificially low which given that because the missing persons figures are quite high given that they're probably an underestimate it is like quite a lot of people going missing so the the latest figure in Australia is the thirty eight thousand missing persons reports a year. But you can probably you could you could pretty safely assume that it's actually a bit higher than that. Mm. And with the with with um, in Australia at least, if a person goes missing and it's reported, are you you're, are you talking about being reported to the to the police services in various states? Yeah, so usually it's the police reporting. Um, there are other ways people can report someone is missing. Um, uh, I think like the Red Cross tracing service and that kind of thing, but that would be more for, that That wouldn't be for a run-of-the-mill case. That would be like if you're trying to track someone like internationally or, or something. So, yeah, it's predominantly from police reports, yeah. And how would a, how, that, that seems to be an incredible amount of work on a police force who's, primary job I imagine isn't considered to be finding missing people but doing more direct community policing how um is there a better way to actually deal with missing people than through the police services do you think yeah so this is something that came up um especially when I I was speaking to the missing persons investigator uh Charlie he made the point and which I agree with a lot of the issues that come up a lot of the reasons why people go missing actually are not well dealt with by police they just aren't that kind of a profession so if you have someone who's going missing frequently because they're incredibly distressed say they've got they're in an abusive situation or um they might have a mental health condition or that kind of thing um it's a bit strange that the police are the ones who are often first responding to that kind of situation rather than um, psychological services or um, other social services. So I think one of the best ways to uh, like prevent so much of police time being used on missing persons is to prevent some of the reasons why people go missing in the first place. And often that is like a lack of social supports, um, 
Yeah, and then I and in other countries, uh, like in Europe and stuff, one of the things that can happen is, especially with younger people, after they've gone missing, they get, I guess, case managed. They get assigned like a social worker or similar who follows up with them, and they you can't just go missing without anyone like asking why or like without trying to um, integrate you with social services or counselling services or or that kind of thing. So I think those two things would make a big difference. And the purpose of trying to find out why the person went missing, that that is preventative for the future, is that the the, the main reason for that? Yeah. if If you figure out why the person went missing and hopefully it's possible to address that cause, especially if it is a difficult situation, like a difficult living situation or maybe just not enough support or or that kind of thing. Mm. The book goes into the tragic Australian event of the stolen generations of the Indigenous people in Australia. And um, the, the point made, I think some of the points that, and I'd like you to comment on this, is it's not just simply the physical removal of a child from their parents. And it's it's not even in these types of cases. It's much more serious also than even, because even if the child is, even if you get the parents out of the picture and say, imagine you have the, the legitimate basis to say, we don't care about their parents and we're going to put this child into a really good home, that still does matter, even if, that was all agreed as being good. I don't know why someone would think that, but for argument's sake, the damage goes much deeper than that. I think the point that one of the points you make is you're taking away the person's their their cultural personhood, mm. their very culture and their all their spirit and their practices and all that sort of thing. It's such a serious, serious thing that's happening. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I think this is a point I, I feel like com- came up in a lot of different cases, but is really emphasized, I think, with cult, uh, with the stolen generations cases because, like, it is it is one thing to take a person away from, like, their family, um, who, you know, it's it's everything it's everything they know, um, and then it's it's also on top of that is the additional wounds of isolating them from their cultural heritage, isolating them from their language, um, isolating them from spirituality and their, I guess, even sense of meaning. And and that sense of meaning is very, like, it's, it's so, like, it's ancestral. It's It, it goes so far back. It, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's so fundamental to, to um, First Nations cultures um, mm. that it, it's it's just it's a travesty. I, I there's not really enough words for it. It's 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 a it's a really frightening practice, and and it's frightening to me that um, there are suggestions that there's sort of like an ongoing um, removal of Indigenous children. Um, uh, I think in 2012 there was the that, which is astounding that there was $80 million spent on surveillance and removal of First Nations children and only $500,000 spent on actually supporting families in poverty. Um, that was in the Northern Territory. Um, and then there's also New South Wales uh, reviews of um, child protection um, of First Nations children um, and things like... Um, protection workers giving misleading evidence in court leading to removal of a child, um, emitting like positive information about what the parents are doing well, um, which is like against their own departmental rules. Um, Mm. Yeah. And this sort of like cases of um, separating twins from each other, this sort of thing. um, It's, it's quite frightening. And another point you make in this part of the book concerns cognitive dissonance and you reflect on how in South Africa apartheid was a regime that was considered horrible for people in Australia but at the same time there were the whole stolen generations that back 
back in those days weren't in the public, didn't have the public profile they might have now at all. It's just there are things that exist within our own cultures that might be abhorrent and they're ignored by taking on these issues that happen in other countries and don't actually affect the people where the communities they live in. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people find that it is easier to criticize um other people or to identify um problems when when it's a system that you're not part of. Like you can you can look at apartheid and go that's terrible. I think it becomes more challenging for people for a multitude of reasons to look at their own culture and see like this is a problem also. Like this is actually like just as bad um, or, or worse even. Um, I, th- I guess that means on the bright side that like people do understand like racism or like certain that governments have the capacity to enact incredibly racist legislation. And mm. if, we, if we're able to like apply that to our own um, understanding of our own culture and our own society, uh, that it would be really useful. Yes. You then have a section in the book on cults. And one question before I move into some of the details on, on cults, you make a, a decision and you, you refer to it in the book about using the term cults rather than new religious movements. Yeah. So it's this is a complicated – this was a complicated question for me. Um, generally – so scholars of new religious movements prefer that terminology because um, the word cult can really um, send the signal that um, just like this is a fringe movement, like this isn't a very popular belief system, therefore it, it's got problems or therefore it is, has dynamics that are abusive or that people, need, that people get brainwashed into them. Um, I decided to use the word cults um, just because this was the word that people who have had experiences in in these circumstances use that word, and I I think that um, they would probably be the like they they have expertise in this that that their lived experience is worth um, acknowledging, and I think that um, what they were pointing to when they called these organizations cults was that I guess a disingenuousness about what they believed and so you have you basically have to join and then you have to be a member for a long time before you actually understand the true nature of what the actual movement is all about which kind of that that dishonesty I I think was part of the reason why they thought of it as a cult rather than uh, like a legitimate religion that is just unusual. Mm. And why do you categorize someone in a cult as being missing in the sense that you, the family might know exactly where the person is. They're off in country X with this particular cult. So they're not missing in the sense of, and it might be an adult. They're not missing in the sense of being sort of lost. How do they factor into being missing? Yeah, I think that is ambiguous. And um, the case I was looking at, which I do think of ultimately as a missing persons case, was um, I was speaking to a friend of someone who had joined one of these groups um, who had basically he'd gone, he was a Korean originally um, living in New Zealand, but he'd gone back to Korea and um, he found one of these groups um, and it was really interested, interesting to him and he decided that um, he would, you know, to stay on. And eventually um, his parents kind of said, like, if you, if you don't come back, we'll, we'll stop we'll stop paying you so like you like you won't actually have enough money to live so then he had to go back to New Zealand and then this group uh, members of it um uh like funded his return back to Korea and from then he was completely dependent on the group um so he needed it like obviously they were fun- they funded his return journey to Korea but also funded his food and you know living 
arrangements and everything and they had certain rules about when he could go out when he couldn't so and then in all this time he got really isolated from the people in his life because um they were like this is this is not right this is you're you're being brainwashed or this this sort of language um Mm. and but the the man the young man i spoke to was the only friend that still talked to him so so they still knew where he was but there was this sense that is this like part of his free will or is is there something about this group that is I guess exposing like certain vulnerabilities and kind of forcing him into a situation where he's not acting the way he ordinarily would if he had his full capacities if he if he could think about the situation from the outside and I think my my view is that people who join these groups are um you know they're they're not uh, they're not brainwashed per se that's not it's not really possible to be brainwashed but it is really hard I think to think about it from from a broader view or like when you're in the middle of the situation and yeah. And then it, it does get really, um, it does get ambiguous. Like are, are they missing or are they just making a choice that is a, like, it's not choices that we would necessarily endorse, but maybe they should be allowed to make it. Um, so yeah, I, I, one of the ways that, I thought about it was that he wasn't abducted. The cult, the cult or the group didn't abduct him. He chose to be there. But at the same time, there was something happening that was like a, a bit abusive and a bit of a, uh, a weird use of power that wasn't quite right. And that um, I, th- I think we can think of it in terms of a missing persons scenario in the sense that, um, it led to a lot of ambiguity for his parents, for his friends, who weren't sure if they'd ever see him again, and and um, didn't feel comfortable with just doing nothing and just letting him uh, like mm. be part of this group. Now, just a couple more questions, Erin. You've been very generous with your time. Oh, no worries. There were a few cases when I was going through the book that I wanted to ask you about. They almost they were almost atypical cases, and how would you classify these before? I'd um, I want to also then reflect again on the opening sentence, to, to be missing you must be missed. So there are situations where the examples which I, I was thinking of were someone who's in prison, someone who has dementia, maybe a kid who's in a boarding school, who to the people left behind, they are missing, they are missing them, but they're not missing people in the sense of the traditionally understand the concept. How would you deal with categories like that? I think that, um, yeah, they're they're not missing persons per se, but I think some of the stuff that I've been talking about in terms of ambiguous loss or in terms of um, just the the way relationships work means that there's like quite a lot of crossover, I think. So I think one of the ways that you can think about relationships is that... um, say a, a family member, say you're like a, a mother, let's say. So obviously like if she's not there, you miss her because, um, you know, you like her, you you know, you love her, you enjoy, you enjoy having her around. But on top of that, she will probably play certain roles in your life. She'll do certain things for you. You'll do certain things for her. And in that way, you both like are interdependent on each other and you both contribute to each other's understanding of yourselves. And I think when someone isn't around, even if you know why, and even if it's, even if it's possible to um, contact them now and then it, it can, it's really tough, I think. And it's, and it, it has to do with the fact that you've, you're missing this chunk of your life when you're missing someone really close to you. Um, yeah. Mm, it's almost the way in which I imagine mediums can 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 get their market going because people miss people and there's such can be such a strong desire to find the person you miss. Yeah, um, I didn't really look into mediums and and that kind of thing, but it is 
a bit of a cottage industry, I think particularly in the US. Um, and yeah, I I mean, I don't want to speculate on like what mediums think about their own job, but I, I think it is quite, uh, I like it's going to be quite salient to people, like this idea that you can communicate to someone who's not there um, and who, who you like really depend on for who you are and um, like maybe when they were around, like how, how your day-to-day life goes. Um, and I, I think it is very easy to exploit that, which is um, really troubling, but um, it does really attest to the power of the ties we have. I think mm. we might not always acknowledge like just how important communities or like especially our strong like family and friend, like close friends really are. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Erin. It's been very enjoyable discussion is that as i say with the when you read your book it just so many ideas you just think how complicated this idea of being missing is it's just not straightforward yeah yeah fascinating thanks and could you let let us know what you are working on now what's your next project well so i i want to work on another book i have not started so um i i guess we'll we'll see what the next project is um yeah, I uh, do uh, like freelance articles every now and then. So um, just working on various ideas as they kind of come up. Yeah. Oh, that sounds interesting. Sounds sounds very free, very um, yeah. enjoyable. So I hope, I wish you all the best with that. Thanks. And also all the best with the book. The book is called The Missing Among Us, Stories of Missing Persons and Those Left Behind by Erin Stewart, it's available now in bookstores on, on through online booksellers as well. Very interesting book. And thank you very much, Erin, for your time. Thank you.